Chapter 36 Now, ten years later, here I was driving on Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel in Virginia on the second day of my journey. The rain was coming down non-stop, a crazed downpour, but it was nothing compared to the storm that was raging inside me. I had driven 438 tortured miles since I left Charleston, South Carolina, and I had another 481 miles of memories to cover before I would see the love of my life again in Montauk. The ocean on both sides of the bridge is gray and murky, the sky dark and menacing, marshlands stretching as far as the eye can see. In the back seat, my invisible companions are all silent and scared. Demonic winds from the ocean are vibrating the car. Don't be afraid, my love. I hear Luisa's call from the past ringing inside my head just like Calypso's voice. Gods. Odysseus stayed seven years captive to Calypso. She wanted him all to herself until Zeus ordered her to let Odysseus go back to his wife. I've been captive for ten years now, and I can assure you that I know something that Homer didn't. My dear poet, did it ever occur to you that maybe Odysseus was in love with Calypso and all this blame aimed at her wasn't justified? Odysseus loved Penelope too. How can that be, I hear all you thousand-year-olds scream. He had two hearts, get it? Unlike all of you, and that includes you, my beloved Homer, Odysseus had two hearts and he loved with both, all at the same time. Hey you, mystery crowd occupying the witness stand in my backseat. Are you ever gonna say anything? Can you put in a word for me to Zeus? Can he talk to Louisa? I think both my hearts are like the ocean on both sides of that bridge now, weeping and howling all at the same time. As I try to catch up with my past, it's playing tricks on me, revealing itself in bits and pieces past has a tendency to turn itself into an illusion when we try to remember it. Many times we invent a convenient past so we can justify our egotistical actions. Not this time, I'm thinking. No way. I want to know what really happened and how I felt back then in all its naked, bare-boned truth. God, I love this woman even more now than I did ten years ago. It's a terrible thing to confess to yourself, but it's true. I remember that feeling like I was riding on a love balloon high above the earth, unable to breathe, because there was almost no oxygen up there. After the bridge, there's a rest area. I pull off the road there. I must open a window and get some fresh air in this damn car. I let the engine idle as I roll the window down. The engine sputters and dies. I try to restart it without success. All I hear is the grinding sound of the starter and the motor coughing using to kick over. The rain is lessened to a drizzle. I pop the hood open. A geyser of steam rises from the radiator, almost burning my hand. I'm stuck there. Nothing more than memory searing my heart with painful truth. Already evening. I walk to the public restrooms where a sign tells me that I'm on the Bayside Road near the town of Exmoor, Virginia. Salty rain from the ocean, it's charged with a fine layer of sand. The few cars that pass don't bother to stop, regardless of how much I wave my arms to get their attention. Standing outside my car in the rain, utterly forsaken by the world, it somehow feels like I deserve all this shit. 
Then, unexpectedly, a strange hallucination dawns on me. I can see myself in Martha's car being driven to Montauk train station that morning ten years before. So happy, so much in love. I'm so absorbed by that vision that I can see myself through the windshield of Martha's car. I can see the man I was that day. Happy man. I watch Martha's car drive away, taking me and my past with it. I see my happy self vanishing on the horizon. I am roiled by a wave of desperation. Would I ever be that happy again? I open my car door, get back into the driver's seat of my steaming car and drop my head under the steering wheel. Suddenly, I start banging my head against the steering wheel, every blow reminding me of how much I miss my past self. Chapter 37 The Martha's Inn sign gradually disappeared in the good woman's rearview mirror that day ten years ago. Her bed and breakfast, grounds, parked cars, and racks of surfboards. Everything shrank to nothing more than a dot behind me. Then it vanished altogether. Martha was wisely silent as she kindly drove me that next morning. Martha slowed the car down to a crawl to pass a group of bicyclists and I felt a familiar salty breeze. Then another unexpected hallucination came over me. I could see my future self. Clearly I saw myself ten years in the future, standing next to a broken down car with marshlands all around. My future self saw me passing by and gestured frantically for help, begging me to stop. I was waving my arms but everybody ignored me. There I was as we passed my paralyzed car. What I saw was a tired man who had given up and was in the driver's seat banging his head on the steering wheel. That man was lost, without a trace of happiness. He had no more fire inside. I prayed Martha wouldn't stop to help the future me. I didn't want anything to do with that guy. It couldn't be me. I wanted to scream. I didn't want anything to do with him. I wanted to beg Martha to please not help that hapless driver. Thankfully, she accelerated and drove past the future me. I turned and saw myself fading away through the back window. A flood of relief washed over me. Even though I felt a pang of sorrow for the future me, he was on his own as far as I was concerned. He had to learn how to look after himself. I have my own life now. I wanted to live it to the fullest. Martha drove up to the main entrance of the Montauk train station and let me out. I gave her a big hug goodbye and thanked her for her hospitality. She drove off and I went inside the station. Chapter 38 The middle-aged woman who was working in the ticket office at the little train station wore a purple cashmere sweater with an open neckline. She leans forward to hand me my ticket back to Manhattan and I get a quick glimpse of her generous breasts. They're beautiful. So is she. I look at her with approval and she sees the twinkle in my eye. Sensing my appreciation, she blushes. I blush too. I don't know what's happened to me, but since I fell in love with Louisa, I'm attracted to every woman in the world no matter their size or shape. I find all the women of the world are now beautiful. On the train back to the city, wherever my eyes wander, I find something sensual about every female passenger who boards my car. One wears black stockings, her legs a little spread open. Another wears red lipstick on her puffy lips ready to be kissed. 
Another has hands so tender and gentle I want to hold and caress them. On top of that, I can smell each of their distinct perfumes. Every aroma makes every woman seductive in her own way. From the corners of their eyes, some of the female passengers are also checking me out, either directly or through reflections in the window. For the first time, I can sense their eyes glancing at me, and it makes me feel embarrassed. I'm an intruder in a female realm that doesn't belong to me. Yet, I have been invited briefly into that world to look at them, to cherish them, and to embrace them but only in my fantasy. The contentment of being smothered with her love is written all over my face. No matter how hard I try, I can't conceal the pleasure I feel. I just let it be. Even as my mind is exploding with arousal, I force my eyes open. There are now other passengers riding in our car. I'm breathless. My forehead is covered in sweat. No one seems to notice it except a couple of women seated across the aisle glancing at me. They are witnessing a man madly in love, and I sense their approval. For a few moments, they offer their companionship on this solitary train ride, and I'm grateful. When we arrived in Penn Station, my fellow women passengers got off and hurried along the platform, where their companions were waiting for them, men from all corners of life. The women are hugged and kissed and held tight and laughed with their men. I ask myself, have I missed something in my previous life? I never knew there was so much love in the city. One has to be in love to see all the love that's around us. Chapter 39 That same evening, while I was still dreaming about Louisa, the telephone rang while I was in the shower at my place in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. At first I try to ignore it because the hot water is rejuvenating my tired body and mind. Whoever is calling is persistent. The ringing stops before I can get to the phone, but then starts again when I go back under the shower head. On the third maddening attempt, I trot along the parquet floor with a towel wrapped around my waist and reach the phone in time. Hello, I say with exasperation. Hello, Luke? Marina, is that you? Oh, hello, what a nice surprise. I didn't think I was going to find you. I'm so happy you finally picked up the phone. I hear her crying, but trying to suppress her tears. Marina, is everything okay? No, Luke, it's not okay at all. What's going on over there? What's the problem? They'll cut me off any minute now, but I don't care. I don't care. Do you hear me? I want everyone to hear, including you bastards who are listening in on this conversation right now. I'm not afraid of any of you. She can't hold back the tears any longer. Luke, are you still there? Marina, please tell me what's going on. They have arrested Vasya. But when I went to the KGB building in Lubyanka, they told me that I should go to the local militia headquarters and file a missing persons report. Why would they arrest him? Last time he spoke to me, he said he doesn't want to be involved with politics anymore. He said he only wants to spend time with you, Andre, and Grandma. It's the list, Luke. What list? The list that your friends got published in the Washington Post. The list of dissidents. What? I don't understand. While interrogating you, the KGB agents replaced the list that Vasya gave you with their own fake list. You know, the one that you were hiding in your boot? They put fake names on that list. So what the American newspaper published was a list of non-existent people, non-dissidents. That gave them carte blanche to go after the real dissidents, and Vasya was high up on the KGB's internal list. He knows about all of it. 
He knows the party's dirty secrets and the KGB's, too. Luke, I'm afraid I'm never going to see Vasya again. Marina, calm down, please. You don't understand. It's total chaos over here, Luke. Everyone's celebrating. Wait, what are they celebrating? My God, don't you see what's going on? Haven't you watched it happening on TV? What's happening? The Berlin Wall. They're tearing it down. Really? Yes. So now what's going to happen to us over here? Russia is no Germany. They arrested Vasya on November 8th, the day before the wall came down. The KGB had it all planned out. Luke, can you please? Without warning, the connection went dead. I was dumbfounded as terrifying thoughts raced through my mind. A fake list? The KGB getting Vasya? And what about all the other dissidents? Were they being rounded up too? I turned the TV on in a hurry. There it was on every channel. An astonishing footage of thousands of people dismantling the Berlin Wall one gray cement block after another. The American newscaster was describing how the East Berlin television station had been overtaken by protesters and how the local intelligentsia were urging calm and national unity on the local radio. While I was falling in love with Louisa, the old world order was collapsing along with the Berlin Wall in broad daylight for everyone to see. That was the date that would live in world history for everyone to remember. November 9th, 1989. The world changed that day because dissidents like Vasya and Lev had the courage to take that one first step. Vasily, Vasya, my dear friend, where are you now? What happened to you? What are they doing to you? Finally, the Berlin Wall has come down and with it the end of the Cold War. What about you and Lev, Anatoly and the others? This is supposed to be a day for you to celebrate, but instead you're under arrest. This just doesn't make sense. So has anything really changed? I guess this means that the Bolsheviks and the KGB were still in charge. My dark thoughts alarmed me but I got a grip on myself right away. Go beyond your own dread and do something about it. Wasn't that my mission after all? I needed to go find Nicholas right away to see what we could do. Chapter 40. I get back into my car and drive off on Langford Highway, getting even closer to my long-awaited rendezvous with Louisa. No sooner than I get up to speed, the rain comes and spreads its fine crystalline drops across my windshield. Within 20 minutes, it's pouring down hard, with the wind picking up, firing raindrops at me almost horizontally. Rain was incessant, no matter the new state. The whole East Coast seemed to be under the deluge. Crossing from one state to another somehow affected my state of mind. Past and present were jumbled up until my cell phone rang, jerking me into the present. I check the display and see that it's Margaret. I let it go to message so I can keep both hands on the wheel in the pouring rain. The trembling voice leaves me a sweet message. Love, it's me. Love, I miss you and I'm worried about you. Julian's going to sing one of the leads at the school concert. He's so excited. Please don't forget your liver supplements. You always forget to take them. Where are you eating on your big drive? Where are you sleeping? I'm trying to picture you in my head all day long. I feel as if I'm on the road with you. 
Just wanted to tell you how much I miss you. Gotta go. Call me. Throughout Margaret's message, I can hear the torment behind her stoic voice. I feel like banging my head on the steering wheel again for not picking up and having a normal conversation with her. Why couldn't I answer the call from my beloved wife and have a normal conversation? God, I don't deserve a wife like her. Doesn't Margaret really know I'm going to see Louisa? Of course she does. Why in heaven's name does Margaret love me so much? Does one ever know why one loves another or how to measure it? I know this, and I'm recording these words very clearly. I love my wife, and I love Louisa. Damn it, I love them both. Oh, how am I going to get out of this in one piece? I wonder if my wife is really a saint. Maybe I'll make the call to God himself and find out. Would he even pick up the line on the other side? Would he patiently listen to me explaining the situation? Would he condone my leaving my wife and child two days ago, supposedly to drive a long way to interview for a job I had no intention of accepting? No way. I wasn't ever going to be a human rights lawyer again. Not after what happened. Why am I lying to my wife Margaret, to my son Julian? Margaret knows. I could see it in her eyes when I left the house that morning. She knew where I was really going. She pretended to believe my phony story about the job opening and courageously hid her complete understanding of the truth. She was very good at playing the supportive wife. Damn good. The only hint of her inner dilemma was the slight trembling I noticed in her hands and the almost imperceptible tightening of her lips. My son was too young to notice any of the tension. Thank God for that. Now I understand that Margaret is taking the gamble, betting all her chips on our marriage surviving this escapade. It was red or black, all in. I was either coming back to her, having resolved my love story with Louisa, closing that chapter of my life for once and for all, or I was going away with the other woman for good. Not coming back. What about my son? What am I thinking? Margaret is so brave. I love her and I know she loves me. When she took me in her arms to kiss me goodbye before I got in the car, I felt her heart beat so powerfully that it seemed ready to explode inside her chest. I caressed her cheeks where a cascade of tears were dammed up waiting to gush out but didn't. When she looked into my eyes, I briefly saw her fear. But as always, she kept her inner turmoil to herself. She put on a brave smile and wished me a safe trip. The kiss was long and passionate. She couldn't stand to see me drive off. Why did she let me go? My wife likes things clear, crystal clear, with no complications. She herself is as lucid and transparent as spring water. Where did she find the strength and the courage to let me go so I could make sense of my heart and mind? Fair what I'm doing to Margaret. How has she tolerated me all these years already? I've been a drunk, a liar. I've been half present most of the time. I've gotten angry. I've been aggressive, picking fights with strangers indiscriminately. I've been impatient, self-destructive, and confused. But I did love her. In my own strange way, I did. As God is my witness, and I still love her. 
It's just different now. Can't explain it. Just different. I pull my car over to the side of the road and cut the engine. The rain has stopped and a thick fog is drifting in off the ocean, making the road impossible to see. It looks exactly like the brain fog in my head. Finally, I must admit to myself that I'm exhausted from the persistent bad weather that's tormenting this journey from outside and even more from inside. Margaret. Margaret, I repeat my wife's name. Somehow, if she were next to me, it would feel safer, no matter the weather conditions. Hey, Margaret, can you come here, please, I say. Now I'm yelling at the top of my lungs. Margaret, do you hear me? Don't leave me alone here, please, I miss you. I close my eyes and let the wind do the crying. When I open my eyes again, I'm starting my 41st circle around the sun. This time I'm not coming back to the same place. That's a promise.